When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello and welcome to the Manchester is Red podcast. My name is Stephen Rilson. I'm your host today and we're recording on the Friday afternoon, a couple of days after Manchester United defeated West Ham 3-1 in the FA Cup. So quadruple talk is still on and it looks like four trophies are going to come to Old Trafford. Isn't that right, Samuel? I, I wouldn't go that far just yet. <laughs> I'm still not nowhere near confident of that. But uh, in the words of James Allen Robson, as we were leaving the press room the other night, uh, United are back, aren't they? And I think they are just about at that point where we can say they are back. Uh, Samuel has goaded me for about uh, five days now, obviously, since yeah, that Carabao it's, it's Cup completely, game. Completely, uh, completely untrue. <laughs> I, made the trip, I made the trip down to London, but it was obviously uh, a joyless visit. Uh, Ty, you were obviously in the capital, along with Samuel. It's nice to be back on the podcast with you both. How are you? Yes, I'm good. Thank you, Stephen. Good. Enjoying the uh, the busy the busy schedule at the moment. It's um, it's it is turning into to quite the season as as Samuel alluded to there, and as uh, as as James Robson suggested, it does it does feel like good times are are coming back at the moment. It's football, football, football at the moment. It's just not stopping, and it's going well if you're a United supporter because they are they just keep winning no matter what the game, and that's what it felt like, didn't it, Samuel? On Wednesday, obviously you both were at Old Trafford in the press box as usual, and a poor performance in the first half, nil nil at the break. West Ham get the goal, um, and you think the quadruple was going to go. West Ham are going to win, but Tenag obviously made a few changes, and it seems to be that winner mentality, does it? That no matter what happens in a game, they just they just kind of come back from it and respond to setbacks. Well, it was another colleague, uh, Ty, who who said about four minutes before Garnacho scored, he, he said to me, "There's an inevit- there's an inevitability that they're going to score here," and of course, that's that's what they did. They got a couple of goals, and at the moment, where United aren't playing particularly well. I think their last really properly good performance, not necessarily from start to finish, but overall as an impressive package, was the Camp Nou, where they came away from it feeling uh, disappointed not to have won that game, and rightly so. They've had some miffy performances since, yet they've won all four of them, Leicester, Barcelona, Newcastle, West Ham, four different competitions, uh, two of their biggest games of the season, certainly in the Barcelona and Newcastle games. They've got a trophy in the cabinet again. And the, the belief is just coursing around the club at the moment. And it's it, it, it's palpable. It doesn't feel like it's temporary. We go back, um, just just look at it, you know, Instagram and the memory uh, reminders you get of what was going on four years ago 
we were just about to fly off to Paris for the PSG game. And of course, that was a, a remarkable night, but it was it was temporary. And that was the night Ole Gunnar Solskjaer's tenure to, to some uh, to some degree did did peak uh, that remarkable comeback of going through on the away goals rule and the manner of it as well. And of course, that ensured that he got the job on a permanent basis. But look how that season ended. It was a it was a disaster. We didn't think it could get much worse than that four 0 defeat at Everton on Easter Sunday. But then, lo and behold, a few Aprils later, back back in in Merseyside, they get thumped four 0 again uh, by by a different uh, Liverpudlian side, and it was a hell of a lot worse under Ralph Rangnick. But where they've got a manager who's just switched on at just about every level, it feels like, and even when even on a night where he's making quite a lot of incorrect calls and he did do that against West Ham he's still getting more right I thought the issue against West Ham was that I mean we do our panel team and I had Martinez starting in mine and he's such a key component of that secure square if you like in that the two midfielders needed to change I had no issue with that they needed some freshness in there by all means preserve Varane for the Liverpool game but Martinez is a durable defender and it struck me as a little bit odd that he would be rested as well. And also where he's left-footed, it opens up different avenues. It, it's better for the balance. Uh, Ten Hag is such a stickler for right-footed and left-footed centre-backs that it, it does feel uh, some somewhat out of kilter with the way that United play when he does abandon that. And of course he did with Maguire and Lindelof and they did not play well to, uh, alongside each other. You look at the manner of how Antonio got through for the one-on-one with David De Gea in the first half. Normally, you want your um, your centre-backs to be parallel somewhat, but they, they weren't whatsoever. The the, the, the defensive line, the, there was no defensive line. It seemed like they were separate from everybody else on the pitch, and one was deep, one was high up. Um, and, of course, it was Lindelof who came off uh, in the second half. It could easily have been Maguire at that point. But once they had the regulars back in the team and credit to Ten Hag, he, he took McTominay off and McTominay did, did reasonably well at the start. But then he showed why he's a squad player, why he's pretty much been found out United this season, attempting passes that Casemiro can, can complete routinely and that are just beyond McTominay. He takes him out of the team. Casemiro comes on. Uh, I mean, West, West Ham still scored. And I think yesteryear when United got that goal that was chalked off rightly so for, for offside from Casemiro that can be a death death knell really it came on in the last what 15 or 20 minutes and that can easily deflate a team but with this team it's it's very different they scored a few minutes later on they're they're far more resilient they have as said they they just have so much belief uh coursing coursing around that dressing room at the moment and that that starts with the manager uh he's I think it's it's fair to say he's he's an elite coach. He's he's proved that in a very short period of time. But it's also the the small adjustments he makes in game, and he's been doing that hell of a lot recently, intervening to ensure that Manchester United win football matches. Victor Lindelof and Harry Maguire was a bit of a throwback, wasn't it? And probably an unwelcome one for the for thousands inside Old Trafford, <laughs> and they've watched Varane and Martinez all season. Um, Ty, do you think it's a fair statement to say they probably would have lost that game last season? And also, let's talk about Ganacho a bit because he scored that goal. And I feel like the criticism of Ganacho, if there has been some, is that he's not sustained a performance for 90 minutes and he can come into games and be an impact sub, but he's perhaps not done it from the start. So to, to stay on the pitch, to survive the changes, to be proactive and bright, and then to score the goal in the last minute, that was a huge, huge positive, wasn't it? 
It was, yeah. I mean, going back to your first point, I guess yes, they, they probably would have lost the game just because they didn't they didn't have that that squad depth. And you mentioned Lindelof and Maguire being a, being a bit of a throwback. If, if you consider kind of the 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 defensive access of the team being those two in the holding midfield, and then having McTominay there made it a, a real throwback with with those three. And I think what what they missed most of all is that they didn't defend particularly badly a lot, but what what they missed was that ability to progress the ball and, and move it forwards. And first half as well, the um, late on in the first half, you could tell it was the, the edgiest Old Trafford had been all season, I would say, because they just couldn't move the ball forward. And it was, you know, Lindelof taking goal kicks, nudging it to De Gea, to Maguire, to Lindelof, to De Gea. And Lindelof, Maguire and McTominay just couldn't find those penetrative forward passes that Casemiro and Martinez do. And that's been a big feature of United's play this year that they've, you know, to use a tactical term, those those two especially break the lines and they find passes that can take three or four players out of a game and, and put United on the attack. And <clears throat> excuse me, the, the the players who played on Wednesday couldn't, and I thought that was a a major miss for them. And in terms of Garnacho, it felt telling that Anthony was the the player to go off rather than um, rather than Garnacho. I, I did wonder at the time if it was. I thought Anthony's reaction to the goal was was really poor, to be honest. I mean, there was a few players who were culpable there for just presuming the throw in was going to be given and, and stopping. But um, I think Casemiro and Dallow were also on the Dallow. scene and, and they they stopped initially and, and then kind of reacted. Anthony just gave up. He just completely stopped moving. And um, Ben Rama was maybe a yard away from him when he started his run, and Anthony just just gave, just gave up. Basically, he just thought that's a throw in, and even when they played on, he just stopped, presuming it was going to be irrelevant. And you know, it, it, Ben Rama wouldn't have necessarily been his man, but he could have still influenced play. And I thought it was a poor look that, that he did just give up, and he came off soon after that. I think Galacho was having the better game anyway, but you wonder if there was there was any relevance to that with with Tenag's substitution. The thing that struck me most about Garnacho was his, his end product decision making is still a little bit iffy, but I thought his work rate. Um, was absolutely incredible on on Wednesday night defensively, especially first half, getting back and tracking four nails. There was time he was the the deepest player in that squad, in that team, and really, really putting the work in to track back and and get back with his defenders. And that that was a noticeable kind of improvement in his game. So he, you know, he did deserve that goal. He he had some excellent moments, but it was a much better all round performance from him as well. I mean, we've all played football to varying degrees of success, I think it's fair to say, but the first rule that you're told as a kid is play to the whistle. And it was uh, it was very, very silly, wasn't it, when you saw a few of those heads be, be slow to yeah. react to that ball uh, <clears throat> on the line. If we just discuss a bit more about Ganacho then, Samuel, because I think that was a really good performance from him and obviously a great finish, he got the goal. Where could you see his career develop now? Because he is a natural left-sided forward. Marcus Rashford obviously plays on that side. He's having the best career of his life, best career of his life, the best season of his career. Um, so where do you see Ganacho maybe playing? Is, is he going to be Rashford's understudy, as simple as that? Or do you feel he could force himself into a starting position? But where would that be if, if you try to get what I'm saying? I think he's got options plenty there. You look at Foden at City and there's there's been such competition since he got into the team six, seven years ago that... He's he's maybe there have been so many times where he's not been a regular and certainly he's, he's tailed off since the World Cup. But you always know that he's going to be an integral part of what City wants to achieve going forward. And sometimes, I mean, it's it's going to matter to the players because they're they're never going to be happy sat on the bench. But 
sometimes it's in the best interest of the squad that you've you've got them there, they're ever present. Garnacho this weekend, I don't imagine he'll start at Liverpool, and I don't imagine there'll be any right-minded United support who thinks that's the wrong call because you want Marcus Rashford going up against Trent Alexander-Arnold. Rashford is, as you say, he's in career-best form. And their most meaningful wins against Liverpool in the last five years have been through targeting Alexander-Arnold. And Rashford got the winners in, in both of those games, the most, the most recent one in August. Um, so I think the, the, the one... Th- the, the, the string that Garnacho needs to add to his bow, and I mean, there are a few still, he's, he's only 18, but I, I'd like to see him play a little bit more on the right. Ten Hag has been reluctant to do that. There have been games where he started Garnacho and Rashford, and you think, well, Garnacho's got to be the one who's, who's on the right because Rashford is Rashford, really, the way he's playing at the moment, but he hasn't. It's been Garnacho on the left, and Rashford's had to switch over to that side, and, and maybe that's Ten Hag's way of... Uh, entrusting the more experienced players and allowing the a younger player like Garnacho to um, get some consistency in that role, and maybe somewhere later along the line he will play more regularly on the right should those uh, opportunities arise. But at the moment, the sky's the limit for him because, as I said, he's only 18. Ten Hag said a few weeks ago he didn't anticipate Garnacho's development to be uh, this this swift. And you look at the first couple of months of the season he, he barely had a kick I don't think he actually played did he until the would it have been the ammonia Nicosia game no it was FC Sheriff sorry I think he started that game because of obviously the um, the issue with his, his, his timekeeping on the pre-season tour and uh, we obviously saw him uh, Stephen when he did very well against Rao Vallecano in the pre-season friendly but how often do, does a youngster do well in a pre-season friendly and then you don't hear or see any of them for the rest of the, the actual competitive season. So there was an element of patience there. And I, I thought it was, again, Ten Hag has this knack for really chiming with supporters and echoing what supporters think or even echoing what what us guys the, in, in the press box think and what we're writing. And what he said the other night about Garnacho, he told him before the game, you've got to have an impact as a starter. was absolutely right. There hadn't been a domestic game yet where Garnacho had really truly flourished um, from, from, from as, as a starter. He, he, he'd done it a couple of times in Europe, but again, the Europa League group stage, pretty much anyone, if you're an academy player at Man United, there's almost an expectation that you should be performing in a Europa League group stage game. Although when Garnacha did score against Real Sociedad, it was in the by far and away the biggest game of that group and it's against a, a good team with with um, pretty good pedigree you actually topped it and so it was I mean I think Ten Hag said himself it was another a step forward the other night in that he was coming up against a um, a decent Premier League team I still think that West Ham's plays on the table is, isn't quite ac- an accurate reflection of the, the quality in their squad and he's he's ended up deciding the match and like Ten- Ty said as well that I think he just said it just then but he also said it while we're in the press room afterwards it was his running tracking back that was another really uh, progressive step because you know the that time when Mourinho berated Eden Hazard for not tracking back and there were a lot of sniffy comments about it, you don't get that anymore because it's a prerequisite for pretty much any elite winger. If you're going to be a brilliant attacking asset, fair enough, but you're also going to have to put a shift in uh, helping out your fallback and the, the failure of the wingers to 
how about United's fullbacks uh, ended up in them getting whipped six three by City earlier in the season. So I think it's not just Garnacho who's learnt from that game, and he was merely an observer that day. It's interesting when you look back at the pre-season tour. Obviously, you, you were both out there in, in Thailand and, and Australia. And Garnacho was the only outfield player not to get a single minute, wasn't he? And yeah. We were all a bit confused at the time with players like Chong, who's now at Birmingham playing, but obviously his attitude wasn't the best. So hopefully that's behind him now and onwards and upwards and he can progress. Um, I think we'll just leave it there for part one. We'll be back in a moment. So Tyrone, to begin part two, I wanted to ask you about Marcel Sabitza and about Weghorst, who obviously both started on Wednesday night. Now, they're both on loan, both signed in January from Bayern Munich and Burnley. Um, and we've probably had enough time now to, to give her opinion on the players. They've both played enough football. Tenog said the other day, it's probably too early to say whether he would sign them. But I'm going to ask you that exact question and say, Tyrone, <laughs> would you sign them at this stage? Um, n- not at the moment, not at this stage. Um, I-, I think I thought Sabitzer had a-, a pretty good game, certainly a good start on on Wednesday night. I thought Vegas had a good game too. His, his link up play was was really really good. He- his issue remains putting the ball in the back of the net. I think he was delighted to see the offside flag when he missed that that chance and a return of one goal in thirteen consecutive starts. Now is is clearly not good enough for a striker. I think you know that there is kind of this growing. Um, chorus of, of people saying they've, they've been great let's sign them they're, they're good squad players but I think it, it, it maybe puts too much focus on on how good they actually are I think what it shows is how easy it is to play well when you come into a team with structure and into a dressing room that, that is welcoming and has got a good team spirit and is, is going in the right direction if you if United had signed Vegas and Sabitzer on loan last January Let's just say that by March, I don't think people would have wanted them signed permanently because they would have found it an awful lot harder. It's just that they've they've arrived at the right time in the right environment under the right manager and have been able to show how good they are. But you know, there's 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 an awful lot of players at that level and maybe better around Europe. Um, the Vegas one, I think it depends what what you do with Martial. Whether you look to sell him this summer, if you do, you need two strikers. Maybe Vegas is a a cheaper plan B. Sabitzer, I, I think you would probably want a younger midfielder. Um, you know that that's the other kind of thing with with this with, with these two. One's twenty eight and one's thirty, and this is this is a squad that is. I don't want to say old, but you know there, there are some players in there. You look at Varane, Casemiro. Um, you know, there's there's players in there who are leaders in that squad and who are world class players but who are nearer the end than the start. You also, you know, in a way, you need to think about the next level and the next step. Um, so I'm not sure signing what a 28-year-old midfielder to be a squad player and a 30-year-old striker to be a squad player is necessarily the right way to go. And I think I think it just speaks volumes, really. Is They're clearly good players, of course they are. Um, but I think they've come into a, a club that is, is very welcoming now, where the team spirit in the dressing room, as we've heard all season, is is really good. And the the structure on the pitch is, you know, is is simple to follow. Players know their jobs. They're getting detailed coaching. When you put a, when you put a good player into that environment, of course they're going to look good. And like I say, had you done that twelve months ago and put them into a a Ranjik team in a dysfunctional dressing room, they wouldn't have looked as good. That's that's just the way it is, really. So um, you know, I, I think they're both they're both clearly options. But I think you'd look for um, 
you know, you'd look for a different profile or maybe a different age profile, especially in midfield where, you know, what's Fernandez now? 27, 28? Casemiro, 30. Ericsson, 31, maybe. You know, I, I think you clearly want a younger midfielder there, especially um, to, to come in and and kind of fill that, that age profile. Fernandez you is want. 28. 28. So you start in midfield, if you put Ericsson there, it's 28, 30 and 31, I think. So, you know, I, I don't really see the point in signing another squad player who's who's late 20s at the moment. I think you'd look for maybe a midfielder who's a bit who's a bit younger who can fill in that kind of spectrum of of ages and experience, I guess. Did anyone see Jurgen Klopp have a pop at the age of United midfielders earlier today? That's kind of yeah, I did. That's kind jealousy, of why it was in my head yeah. then. Yeah, yeah, but I mean, it it, it is kind of the sarky thing that Klopp likes to say. Um, but like I say, with with some of those signings, you can see that. Casemiro's brilliant. It could be brilliant for five or six years. Who knows? But there is kind of the younger age of the spectrum in the squad that that probably does need need filling as well. But yeah, I, I saw it. That's why it was kind of in my head. I thought it might have been, and obviously just because Fabinho's got posters of Casemiro on his wall, he was saying that probably wasn't he? Really? Because um, Casemiro has been. I so mean, good. Fabinho. Fabinho looks a lot older than Casemiro this season, and uh, and I think he's younger. So. The legs have gone in that midfield, haven't they? I'm sure we'll get onto that. Um, obviously, Sunday afternoon at Anfield. But we'll just carry on with this game for now, Samuel. I thought it was worth mentioning Dallo because I feel it, it might have been a surprise to start him at right back. Um, Bampasaka started both games against Barcelona, and I thought, to be fair to him, he was excellent. I'm not going to speak for both of you, but I think on this podcast, the general consensus might have been that Bampasaka's days were numbered at the club, and you know, an exit looked inevitable. But to his credit, he's fought back, he showed a Mario Bulcara there. And, He's making a real go of it and he's been impressive in the last few weeks, hasn't he? So, were you surprised that decision start Dallo after that Carabao Cup final? Um, particularly because Wambasaka came on and St. Maximin was brilliant, wasn't he? He was, he was dancing around Dallo and Wambasaka made a real difference when he when he entered that pitch at Wembley. He did. Uh, we're now talking about a game that was played nearly a week ago. But well, he, I wanted he did, to talk about did. it in context towards Sorry, Sam, towards Sunday, of course, because Liverpool's attackers, let's face it, it's a, they're objectively better than Newcastle's and it's going to be a similar task. You're going to perhaps have three players of St. Maximin's quality. So I'd personally start Juan Pasaka on Sunday, actually. And I don't know yeah, I, 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 I agree with that. I think, uh, you know, spoiler alert, but for our panel uh, <laughs> piece that goes out on Sunday morning, it looks like all three of us have picked Juan Pasaka because he is, is the informed right back, despite not starts in the last two games. I think he would have been probably in the predicted lineups for the Newcastle game and the West Ham game in midweek because of the, the circumstances going into both those matches. I thought he did pretty well against Barcelona in the second leg. A couple of colleagues said, oh, you know, it was the right time to take him off. He had to come off. They weren't as impressed, but I thought he was quite respectable, um, all things considered, that night. And there was a reason why he wasn't sold or loaned out in the summer. That was because United were so dreadful last season. He was so dreadful last season that nobody was going to pay a fee for him. And in the end, it's, well, if, if nobody's coming up with a good enough loan fee or nobody really wants him enough, uh, you, you're, you're stuck with him and you've not got the leverage to go out and get Serginho Dest or another right back. I mean, uh, in, in the end, it's worked out pretty well for United because Dallo up until the World Cup was excellent and unfortunately for him that injury against Morocco was really impacted his season because he it meant he was out for a while I think it was a hamstring injury he came back in he got injured pretty 
pretty quickly after that. I think it was the Charlton game. He, he limped off in the first half and, and Wan-Bissaka has had a, a couple of very good months and Dallow, you know, trying to simplify it, I suppose the best he's really mustered since he came back from Qatar has been a six out of 10 in a game. He's he's not looked like the force he was in the first few months of the season, which is a pity. And he was very good at the World Cup as well. He ousted Jao Cancelo from the Portugal team and speaking to people who cover the Portugal national side who live in Portugal or are Portuguese, they were of the opinion that Dallo should have been starting the World Cup. So he's, his stock at the time... Of, of the World Cup was was really high and it, that that injury as I said it, that he got against Morocco in the quarterfinals it's had a it's had a adverse effect on his on his season but he is he is getting games he's still he still just does not look to be at his optimum and I think it's pretty clear from Ten Hag's perspective that Dallo as the all round package he prefers him as a right back to Wambisaka because okay he got that. Assist against, that assist for Ericsson was it against Burnley in the League Cup but he's still not a completely modern right back the reason why he came on against Newcastle was because some Maxman as you said was was causing Dallow you know, untold strife and United needed a, a very defensive head to to counter him and, and Wan-Bissak was very good in that sense he didn't really do a great deal going forward but he has struck up a pretty good rapport with with Anthony of all people, which is a you know it's, it's a very unlikely alliance. The the right back who barely speaks and the Brazilian who I don't think has spoken a, a word of English. But when you put them on the pitch together and they seem to have a very good um, a very good understanding and they they link up pretty well. So I it would not necessarily surprise me if Dallo starts this weekend just on the strength of. Ten Hag's trust in him and uh, the credits he's banked there. But as I said, you know, I have spoiled it, the, the, our, our own self-imposed embargo for 4.30am on Sunday morning. But uh, I, I can see why I, I can see why both of you have gone for Wan-Bissaka because I've, I've put Wan-Bissaka in my team. It's probably the only position that you could say is uncertain or contentious going into the Liverpool match. It occurred to me the other day that I'd never actually heard Juan Basaka speak. Can I have you recall? You probably to never so, will. <laughs> well, I did a quick Google search, you see, and I think the the closest clip I could find was January 2021, I think. And then before that, it was his unveiling video. So I don't know if you he two spoke are... at He spoke at St. James's Park. I'm not goading you here, but he obviously <laughs> did score a goal at St. James's Park. Uh, what was it, two and a half Four years one, ago? I think, and I think yeah. they yeah, they, they they spoke to him on the pitch after the game. Uh, so I think that might have been the only time. But yeah, even when Ty and others of us, uh, other members of the the Manchester press back tried to speak to him in Perth, uh, they were struggling to elicit any words from him. And that was with Manchester United staff actively encouraging him, encouraging him to talk. And back in those days, it was very rare for United staff to try and get a player to speak. They wanted Juan Bissaka to speak, and uh, it turned out he uh, he didn't want to speak. I mean, don't get us wrong. I only speak to you two because I get paid to. I don't. I don't choose to. So, <laughs> so maybe that's why one. Maybe that's why one Pesaka has taken the same approach. Um, before we move on to Liverpool, Tyler, let's just discuss Casemiro because he came on at half time. We've obviously sang his praises all season. And um, McTominay came off. He thought he'd scored with that header, obviously from the set piece. It was 
rightly ruled off for offside but he's made such an impact this season he comes on in games like that and he almost changes the course changes the direction of what is happening me and Samuel talked about it um, the week before that actually before I was off and we, we discussed the signing of the season and I said look we, we talked about it I think around Christmas time um, and I wanted to get your verdict Ty because me and Samuel had a, a plight of disagreement of course and Samuel was leaning the, the way of Lissandro Martinez for being signing of the season and I'll probably lean towards Casemiro so where do you win uh, in that debate, would you say? Um, I think they've been both been exceptional signings. I think I would be leaning towards Casemiro um, now. The the influence he's have he's had just seems to be growing and growing, and he's been he's been totally transformative in in terms of how they can set that midfield up, playing with just one holding midfielder, the quality of his forward passing, but also just how good he is off the pitch and. Everything you hear about him, his leadership skills, what it, you know, what it, what it means to him. You see how much it meant to him on on Sunday. He just looks, you know, he for me, he is he is the one that has made the biggest difference on the pitch this season. Um, I think he's been absolutely outstanding. I think there's an argument he's he's player of the year. It's certainly up there with with Rashford for the two of them. Rashford's numbers are obviously gonna gonna sway that, but I do think he's been he's been that influential. It, it feels like he's the one that's that's raising the bar for, for this team. And, you know, on, on Wednesday night, someone wanted yesterday, it was like sending dad on to sort it all out, wasn't it? And, you know, he's, <laughs> he's, he's become that kind of, that kind of player. He is just, you know, the, the heartbeat of that team. And it's, Did Phil in come a way out it's, that? no, it wasn't. No, it was Jonathan Norcroft oh. that mentioned that. Yeah. Uh, yes. A good one, a good one. Um, but he is in a way, it, you know, when you have a player that good, it sometimes creates a problem that the player beneath them isn't that good, and then you notice the drop off. And you know, I don't, I don't mean unfair on Scott McTominay, but I think he'd accept he's not quite in Casemiro's league. And you know, there's there's probably a few a few other leagues between them as well. And when you take when you take one out of the team, and you've had a team that's used to playing with Casemiro and pinging those fast thirty yard balls into feet, sweeping up, um, you know, sweeping up play a lot, and just. You know, he's just in the right position all the time. He's a, he's he's a great leader and he's a great player, but the problem is finding someone that can back him up and and do that job. And you know, it's 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 not really McTominay's game. I think Samuel said on um, on Wednesday that him and Subetza, McTominay and Subetza were were kind of working it out for themselves because they both like to push forward, whereas Casemiro does occasionally, but he's always there as the last man sweeping up that that midfield really. So it feels like that is maybe something they need to look at signing a, a player who can be Casemiro light if you like but you know that that's that's the way football and, and football fans work that you get you get a brilliant player who's a complete game changer for the team then you take him out and say oh we need a we need a backup game changer but um you know it's it's not it's not that simple really but it does show when he's not in the team that there is there is a drop-off and it's not just a drop-off in in that position it's a drop-off in the way the the team plays as a whole that's 2-1 Samuel in the Casemiro vote so stay tuned for what Richard <laughs> Ray thinks to make it a, a late equaliser perhaps <laughs> uh, that's all for part 2 we'll be back in a moment to look ahead to the game on Sunday now we'll start this section with a bit of a quiz question I know how much you both love that so United last won at Anfield in January 2016, gents. Wayne Rooney 1-0. Um, how many goals have they scored at Anfield in the years following? One. 
Samuel's doing a sheer impression and holding his hand up after <laughs> Well done, Samuel. Yes. You're correct. Bang on the money again. I can't catch you out. Jesse Lingard. Jesse Lingard in December 2018. Mourinho's last the cop. Yeah. One of these days I will find an answer that neither of you <laughs> can provide. But Samuel, look, it's going to be a tough game. Liverpool have struggled this season, but they've started to pick up a little bit of form. There was obviously that onslaught, I guess, against Real Madrid the other week, which was pretty embarrassing after being 2-0 up. But they have made steady progression, I'd say, over the last few weeks anyways. Um, yeah. Do you think, obviously, confidence is riding high in the United camp? Um, the one 2 one at Old Trafford early in the season. So what are your expectations for this game? Can United do the double over Liverpool this season? Because that would represent another milestone again, wouldn't it, I guess? Well, I watched the Liverpool game against Newcastle with one eye on the League Cup final and thought Liverpool were very good. Uh, they, in some ways... Klopp may, may have been quite annoyed coming away from it that they didn't really put Newcastle to the sword because they had a hatful of chance in the second half and then they almost risked making it very awkward for themselves with I think the Callum Wilson chance in the last 10 minutes where he, he just didn't really strike the ball. He really should have scored that. And yeah. Alisson, it was a relatively routine stop for him. He, he, as you say, he should have scored. But they, they were very, very dominant with 11 men against 11 men. And then when Nick Pope was sent off, uh, they they always toyed with Liverpool at times, sorry, with Newcastle at times and should have been a lot more clinical. But it does seem like things are starting to click for Liverpool at least on a domestic level and then of course they came up against Real Madrid and I don't think anyone can really legislate for it you you can maybe just say why play Joe Gomez who just doesn't I thought he was a decent defender before the bad injury he had since then uh, he, he just looks like a player who should not be anywhere near that Liverpool team and of course, Klopp would rather play Canate, but Canate has had his injury issues this season. Uh, Van Dijk's lost form, so they're not as watertight at defence as they used to be. But looking at some of those goals they conceded against Real Madrid, uh, the, the mind really did boggle. And um, as, as bad as it was for the equalising goal, where you look at the bad back pass from Gomez and it's easy to blame Gomez, there was a big, big gap for Alisson just to punt it clear and not even risk um, Vinicius Jr. getting a, a touch on it and he gets a good enough uh, connection with it that it goes in. Uh, you watch Alexander-Arnold's defending for the, the Militao header and I've, I've always been of the opinion that Alexander-Arnold cannot defend, but in that moment, he refused to defend. He, he literally acknowledged his existence and then he just didn't bother tracking him. And so, yeah, sometimes you just can't explain uh, those those defensive errors. But I think those results that they had um, last week uh, against against Real Madrid, and who, who was the weekend result they had as well? 2-0 against Wolves. No, the one before it. I've had yeah, a mind blank all of a sudden. I can't, I can't pull that from my mind, uh, unfortunately, Samuel. Crystal Palace. Ah, that's a good yes, chance. Yes, the, the, the Palace game. Yeah, the nil-nil Palace game, where I, I didn't think they played particularly well in that. So they've gone from playing very well against Newcastle to having a very good 20 minutes against Real Madrid, but getting wallops. And then the Palace game, uh, it could have gone either way. Again, some really poor defensive errors and... Um, in the end, you've got Jamie Redknapp suggesting that it's it's not necessarily a bad result for Liverpool. Uh, in the grand scheme of things, it may not be too costly, but it's it's quite the departure from this time last year where they were formidable and borderline unbeatable. United were the first team, I think, to beat them in a domestic competition in, in the calendar year, and that was in August. But I suppose looking back to that game when 
it was a remarkable night in a lot of ways because going into it, you wondered whether this was a good time for United to be playing Liverpool or, as most of us suspected, it was just a dreadful time to be playing them because they'd just been walloped 4-0 by Brentford and you had the fans mutineering and protesting. There was a lot of negativity around the club. In the end, they just channeled it into the most unexpected positive with that opening 20-minute burst where they blitzed Liverpool and they managed to see it out and, and get a, a rather unlikely win. And, and that game has been pivotal in both clubs' seasons. It was such a premature stage of the season. I certainly didn't think it had a bearing on Liverpool's campaign. I, I would never have predict, predicted that night that United would still finish above Liverpool. And we've all been expecting Liverpool to get back to their old selves and they've trounced Bournemouth. I think Bournemouth was their next game, actually, after that United one. They trounced them 9-0. They trounced Rangers 7-1. They had a good win against City, a good win against Tottenham as well. But they just can't quite seem to shake it off. And they've that their season's been peppered with these really disastrous results. This year alone, you've had the Brentford game, you've had the... Uh, the Wolves game and, of course, the Real Madrid game, and we're only in March. So uh, all, I'd, all I'd say is I think given how badly they performed prior to the Wolves game against Madrid and and then the Palace game as well, I think that's probably just going to reinforce the focus so that there's no way they're going to underperform as badly as they have done in, in, in some of the more recent games. And where United are, are renaissance again and where United are um, competing on, on, in a few competitions and they're above Liverpool as well. Uh, I just think that's just going to reinforce Liverpool's folks enough that they will be a very, very difficult, uh, a very tough nut to crack this weekend. Uh, United have won at Anfield by, I mean, we're talking about how many goals United could win by at Anfield. It's, it's that positive for United, even though uh, we risk it getting ahead of ourselves. But if United there, it's it's going to be a, a narrow victory. It's going to be a one-goal win. I don't foresee United going there and winning by at least two clear goals. And I don't think that's happened for United at Anfield since 1997. But the fact that people are talking about United being in good shape to go to Anfield and win at Anfield is a sign of progress. Because the only time in recent years where there's been similar chatter was probably January 2021, where United had that brief period where they were at the top of the table. And of course, you didn't have a crowd there. And we all know how misleading that season was for United. And once normality resumed the following season, things were back to normal because United were dreadful again and Liverpool were formidable again. You talked about that 2-1 win at Old Trafford in August. And I tell you what, lads, that MEN journalist who reported on the, the protest before that game, he's got a, he's got a bright future in That was outstanding. That'll go on the bio as well, Samuel. Um, Fred, <laughs> let's talk about Fred's time because we talked about Dallow and Wampasaka in regards to who might start on Sunday afternoon and there's obviously a choice to make between make between them two but I think if you look at Fred and he's, he's probably been the perfect foil to Casemiro in the last few weeks and he's been energetic and his performances have been really good I call him a bit of a mad player on the podcast the other week and we've discussed it I think all at lengths is inconsistency he can produce great moments and then have bad moments but it's an immense compliment to his performances that he's probably a certainty to start on Sunday obviously there is injuries but he looks really comfortable on that midfield at the moment doesn't he? He does, yeah. I mean, I, I've been a little surprised that he hasn't played more with, with Casemiro, given how good their understanding has, has been for, for Brazil. I mean, Fred plays in that Brazil midfield an awful lot with with Casemiro, and they clearly have a, a good relationship. Even recently, even a month ago, I, I've kind of had the impression that almost he, 
his face doesn't fit with Ten Hag for some reason that he doesn't fancy him because he's he started him in the league very rarely and and saw the injury crisis. He just he didn't seem to be getting the minutes that that I had expected him to. I thought he would quite like him as a player, but does seem to be changing now. He's he's playing very well. Was that is that five goals now since the World Cup um, on? Wednesday night, I think, I think it's four or five. Season. Yeah, he's got six this season. Yeah. I think most have come since the World Cup. Yeah. Um, so you know he's 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 popping up with goals as well, and like you say, I think he is he is a certainty to to start that game. I would have him starting in, ahead of Sabitzer for sure, and mm. that understanding with Casemiro is is probably going to be vital in in midfield. You know, you look at Liverpool, and and that's an area where United should be should be dominant. Really, there's been plenty written this season about Liverpool's midfield issues even with that Ericsson, you have Casemiro and Fernandez, and then throw Fred in and, and that understanding and the energy Fred brings. And that's an area where United could could really dominate at Anfield. So, so yeah, I would definitely have him um, in the starting 11. He's, he's, he's playing well at the moment. He's influencing games. Like you said, yeah, a mad player is probably a good way of putting it. He can have games where it just looks like he's forgotten how to, to pass the ball. It's kind of an issue with him and McTominay at times and that their radar can just... Can just be off. They they just lack the, you know, they're not quite at the elite world class level for for passing, um, but and I think that was always an issue with them playing alongside each other. Whereas if you've got Fred say alongside Casemiro, it's it's not as noticeable. If you've got someone else who's who's passing is brilliant. Um, it was it was more of an issue when they played alongside each other. So yeah, I think you know playing very well at the moment. It's taken a while for him to kind of force his way into the team and into the picture a little bit more than than you might have expected. But he's another he's another example, and, and there's an awful lot of them. And it kind of goes back to what I said about Sabitzer and Vegos that players are now coming into this team and, and looking good. Wambasaka's a a great example, and that he was a write off three months ago, and now I think he's you touched on it before, but I think he's arguably pushing Dallow now for for a place. I think that's gone from being one position in the squad with no competition to the position now with the most intense competition so it just shows that when you have that that structure you can drop players in who might not have played as much as they want but they can suddenly start start thriving and I think that's what's happening with Fred Just before we wrap up then uh, are we all looking forward to reporting on a historic quadruple then by by the end of May June (laughs) time (laughs) <laughs> uh, it's not the quad. It wouldn't be the quadruple, though, would it? As, as uh, um, one of our colleagues highlighted, there was a banner in the Stratford End uh, about twenty years ago, deriding Liverpool's Mickey Mouse treble of the <laughs> FA Cup, League Cup, and uh, the UEFA Cup. And obviously, that's that's what United are aspiring to achieve. And and also, like then, that that ended a six near six year trophy drought for Liverpool. So the, the parallels really do uh, do quite stack up there. I mean, I the, can't um, even imagine what it's like to win a Carabao Cup. Never mind. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm not getting carried away. <laughs> the, um, the issue with the league title is that they're, I mean, it's obviously, it was always a distant possibility anyway, but they could kick off on Sunday 14 points behind Arsenal. Because I think Arsenal will have played three times since United last played in the league. And, and although that doesn't change, you know, that, that hasn't really changed a lot. There's still games Arsenal could drop points in, psychologically, being 14 points behind at this stage of the season, even with a couple of games in hand, um, one of which will obviously be at, at Liverpool Fields. You know, it, it feels too big a gap, doesn't it? 14 points, even even yeah. with those games in hand, that the feels mo- impossible. There's a, lack of, there's a lack of momentum that they can generate. I think between from when they played Leicester fast forward six weeks to when they play Newcastle they'll have played two league games in between 
which are Liverpool and Southampton. So because of the cup commitments, getting to the League Cup final, getting to the FA Cup quarterfinals, that is killing their momentum on, on the league front. Not that I've ever, and a lot of people have ever really seen United's title challenges. That if they finish third this season, that is a brilliant season for them as far as the league goes. This season, this season seems all but certain to be a success. So in some ways, it does do them a bit of a favour because when there was that title chapter in January after they beat City, the Palace game, the Arsenal game, it wasn't a coincidence they dropped points when there was a little bit of expectation on them. I have tried to get it's, some um, to entertain title talk, but it's just not worked. And you'll learn, Stephen. No, no, you'll learn in time. You're, you're still he's been, been steadfast, to be fair to him. <laughs> I'll keep trying. Uh, thank you very much for your time, Samuel. Thank you, Stephen. And thank you, Tyrone, as usual. Cheers. Thanks, Stephen. And thanks to listeners. Head over to the YouTube channel. Check out on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and all your other audio platforms. Take care and have a great weekend.